Hello, and welcome back to the RPE Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Connor, and I'll be joined by Stephen Dan. The RPE Podcast is a show dedicated to talking about training, rehabilitation, and sports medicine in the musculoskeletal setting. This show is for all healthcare providers, including new and experienced strength and conditioning coaches, physiotherapists, exercise physiologists, and also students of any allied health profession who are interested in rehab and management of athletes and the general population. On the show, we aim to try and make sense of all of the evidence and present it in an easy and practical way that tries to bridge the gaps in each of our respective knowledge bases. We enjoy staying up to date with the evidence base, and as a result, we find new information all the time that we will look to pass on to you. One last thing, the views and opinions on this show are our own and should not be taken as healthcare advice. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to RPE Podcast. So we've just finished chatting things about um, lateral or all ankle sprains. Um, so now let's start talking about uh, some other pathologies that can happen either concurrent with or after or completely separate to ankle sprains. So Scotty, where do you want to start here? Do you want to go to the plantar fash? Yeah, I mean, oh. You can kind of group plantar fasciitis and Achilles tendonopathies in a similar boat, I think, in the fact that they're generally both overuse injuries. Yep. And um, in the initial stages, what you really want to do is, is work out how they are overused. Or, yep. or, you know, I guess firstly, what their risk factors are. You know, are they a, a young person and an athlete? and it's a, it's a training load issue or a training volume thing, or are they, you know, are they an over 60s um, female with diabetes and diabetes? diabetes. Yeah. You know, you're going you're gonna to treat them both a, a different way, but um, at the end of the day, the load on the tissues is, is over and above what it is able to tolerate. Um, yeah, so, I was going to say, with, um, even with the, the diabetic female, even though the risk factors are different, it, it's the same thing, it's a, just the overload of the like the volume load for whatever she's done over the last little while has been too much. Same as a, it's just too much down here versus an athlete was too much, like way up there kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, exactly right. So I guess the first thing is to um, education on if there was a particular um, event or load that was too much that set it off and, and reducing, uh, I suppose, um, daily or, or weekly training load. Um, whether that's through uh, not as many sessions or reduced time in sessions, but maybe same intensity, or, or just even advice about rest. I think tendons are particularly important, like the rest of the body, that they need rest. You know, it takes, if it's a, a fairly strenuous sort of stimulus on the tendon, it takes 36 to 48 hours for that tendon to fully recover. And if you just continually just banging away at it, it's, it's going to get sore. It's going to get sore. So if it's reactive, taking away that stimulus, giving it a bit of a spell, um, maybe might have some additional information on, on footwear, heel raises, um, orthotics. All those can work really nicely to offload some of those structures. I think in the in the short term, or, or changing you know training load if it's an athlete. Um, changing stimulus, changing exercise a little bit um, is a nice way to start. If that so doesn't, 
if, if you're talking like the SRA cycle, I guess what you've just yeah. like your kind of all of those interventions are dealing with that recovery side or, or decreasing the stress. Basically, it's either yeah, or either promoting recovery by relative rest by um, kind of using protective things like um, orthotics use or um, taping to yeah. decrease the stress on the tissue or increase its kind of rest or, or for lack of a better word, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly right, exactly right. Um, and if that, you know, if, if things are settled down with there, it's, it's reintegrating back into whatever their training program was. Not going 100% back in, maybe sort of stepping it up um, by a bit so that they don't go and overdo it again. Um, if if it's still sort of hanging around and you need to train it a little bit, it's, it's considering, um, I think there's value in sort of like heavy, slow resistance training of a tendon to help um, make it stronger, make it more tolerant to loads. I think going through that is quite nice. Um, if you have access to that, if, you, if, you can, if you've got weights itself or if you've got access to a gym through your club or, or privately, there's definitely value in that. But at some point, you've got to get back into running um, and, and trying to work on that stretch shortening cycle of the tendon and work on the elastic component. So, so running or plyometrics or, or something like that and chipping away at that until, you know, they're doing more than what they need to on a daily basis. Okay? Yep. Yeah, so, so that could be, um, look, I love, I love barefoot work. You've got to be really careful on who you get to there for work because it does put a whole lot more strain on on the, the the tissues of the foot and the ankle, but nothing else will give you the same kind of stimulus to those structures as barefoot running. You know, whether it's slow speed, low sets, low rep, low volume, um, as an adjunct to what you're already doing, and then just building that up as you find it and as you apply it. That'd be just in the real sort of late stages. Also, I recommend when you just got a, a real niggly sort of pain, two out of ten, um, maybe a little bit of stiffness the next day, and just chipping away at that. Maybe twice a week tops with your other training. And so even I guess you, you like you can't back like that barefoot work. Say in things like balance proprioceptive drills, even in resistance yeah. training drills, um, with yeah. good external cues to be able to. Um, keep a, a nice arch. Well, you can kind of low level load them relatively early as a way to kind of prepare them for what is coming a bit later. Yeah, yeah. So that's a, that's a, a good point. That's a really nice place to start. Um, I I don't focus on maintaining an arch consciously trying to maintain an arch too much. I think if you do the right exercises, it will come. Yeah. Um, so even if you look at if you look at a calf raise, single um, single leg calf raise. If you look at their foot posture on the ground, and then as you come up, just by the nature of coming up and the windlass mechanism and the muscle of the foot, it turns into a really nice arch, uh, and then coming down again. Maybe trying to maintain that arch as you come down. So that's about as far as I go. Um, moving on to tiptoe walking. Again, you, you make sure the muscle of the foot there are working in that sort of reduced base of support having to work a whole lot harder, just tiptoe walking forward, backwards. Um, the bunny hops we talked about a, a bit earlier, adding a little bit of extra body load on that, so bouncing on it, making the tendons look a little bit more. I think um, just trying to maintain the arch or just the foot form functions, I think they have their place um, in sort of early to mid-stage rehab, but 
what you're more or less doing is just active range of motion. And we don't tend to strengthen the other muscles just through unloading active range of motion. And I think that's where getting in tiptoes, doing some bouncing, doing some jumping, hopping, um, walking, running, barefoot, adds that extra load on those muscles, makes those tendons work um, in an elastic kind of fashion, which they're designed to, which, which you don't just get out of, you know, calf raises or, or foot form exercises with balance. I think if you want to work proprioception, that's fine. You're doing it for proprioception reasons. Good, go for your life. But I think if you're trying to strengthen the arch, I don't think that's good enough. I don't yeah. think that's strong enough if the, if the intent is to strengthen it. Because well, I guess you're not going to reach failure in under that, even under that kind of 30 reps, you're still not going to be reaching failure with a lot of those things that it's not even going to be like a hypertrophic kind of stimulus. You need to... If you yep. want to do it, you'd have to do something where the arch is is going to fail, kind of. It's yeah, yeah, no, yeah, that yeah. Within within you know that fifteen reps to to be getting somewhat of a, a strengthening yeah. stimulus. So yeah, that's why a, a lot of those interventions aren't particularly strength interventions. They're more yeah. as you said, like proprioceptive or, or something like that. Yeah. Yep. 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 Definitely. Um, and I think the other thing is, you know, if you've only got body weight on it, or with movement, maybe it's a bit more than body weight, how well does that transfer across to running? Which, you know, is depending on where you look, five to eight times body weight through through that ankle joint or through the muscles that they have to work. You know, it's it's not enough. It's a good start, but it's not enough. So, and interesting. Say, like you were saying, so it's awesome, like you really do like to go towards a specificity kind of side of it. How are you against kind of bringing that in early in just little micro-dosing, like say when they are still quite acute? Like I know I've always been under the impression and always done more of a more of a linear kind of progression through um, doing like isometric and then kind of heavy slow and then up into kind of plyometrics etc but um yeah there's there's a another little bit of a thought out there that why not yeah. kind of micro dose that little stuff almost like an undulating periodization just micro dose yeah. that stuff in almost from the start as long as it's not creating big flare-ups yeah I, I think there's um a really good argument but I, I don't tend to do it too much um, probably the way I'm set up to work um, in the public system generally can only get people in every two weeks, sometimes a bit longer, sometimes a little bit less. Um, and so unless you've got a really um, knowledgeable patient that, that has a really good body awareness and really good idea or ability to understand what's too much on their body and what's not enough, for me, there's just too much risk someone will overdo it and set themselves back a little bit. So I tend to favour that linear progression. But you know, if you're if you're working in a you know club sport and you're seeing this across a week, like, sure. If you're an SNC coach and you're seeing these guys two, three, four, five times a week, look, sure. There's probably no reason why you can't do that because you can monitor them better. You can go, oh, how did you go with that yesterday? How did you go that two days ago? Yeah, good, pull up, great. Or or uh, few changes today, and so then you can monitor. That a holiday, so I think I think there's a really good argument for that microdosing. I think there can be practical issues with it, depending on 
on what your client's like, depending how much contact you have with your client and how you can monitor it from there, I think. Nice. Um, so getting back to the original question about plantar fasciitis and, um, and Achilles tendon um, issues and, and training that, I think it's really about making sure they have good range. So that's the 15 to 20 degrees uh, total cool dorsiflexion. Um, making sure that they've got reasonable mobility through the subtalar joints. Um, making sure they've got good first metatarsal dorsiflexion. I like to get a, I like to aim for about 45 degrees or whatever the other side is. Um, if you don't have that ability to dorsiflex that first metatarsal joint, it's kind of like walking with flippers or walking big shoes around. You've got to generate either more force through the, the calf and you can tend to get over that one or you've got to chase other ways to find mobility. And usually that's through you know, internal rotation of tibia, pronation through the midfoot, um, maybe external rotation of hip. So you're sort of rolling over on the inside of that metatarsal joint as opposed to over the first and second metatarsal joint through the wall. And so that, that adaptation causes, you know, depending how you adapt, you know, can be a contributing factor to get pretty standing off plantar fasciitis there. So if you make sure that they've got good range and they can use that range um, in good biomechanics, that bio part, the biopsychosocial um, model, and then strengthen up plantar flexion with a little bit of bias on maybe inversion and eversion, um, that's a really nice way to start. You know, starting with your, your TheraBand if relevant, double leg calf raises, progressing single legs, Progressing to slightly more plyometric activities like your bunny hops, or, or, or you know, progressing from double leg to single leg to you know, maybe moving forward to, to running to sort of arc type exercise to cutting exercises to repetitive hopping, you know, something like hopscotch or skipping um, is a great way to, to get that bounce. Skipping is really great, I find, for, for loading through the whole lower leg, maybe not just the, the foot. Um, and training that way and, and managing load along the way, I think, are the keys to, to treating all of these kind of overuse injuries where there's um, a plantar flexion ability or a stiffness, that, a dynamic stiffness issue with the ankle. I think, you know, it all comes down to the same boat, but the stress is on different tissues for different reasons. I reckon you find an interesting thing here where the two kind of sides of physio, well, unfortunately, the, I'm dichotomizing it here, but the, where the yeah. people who are really bio, like psychosocial versus really um, biomechanics here, like some would go, hey, you know, look, we need this dorsiflexion, we need this, um, we need your great toe extension, et cetera. And the others would say, well, look, we can just, play with the volume load loads and allow it to adapt. Basically, it's all just, no matter what, all it's doing on both sides is just adjusting the stress to the tissue realistically for yeah. a certain period of time to allow the adaptation. So whether you're doing that by getting the biomechanics to be the same as the other side or as close to as possible, therefore you're going to be putting less stress onto different tissues or, or just spreading the stress differently over tissues or you're yeah. managing it via going, okay, we're just going to really play with the volume loads like crazy here. Again, the same thing. You're just, you're just playing, tinkering with that stress recovery adaptation yeah. cycle, yep. really. 
So yeah, there shouldn't really. be a lot and, of and, and, We're doing everyone's doing the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, the best argument or the best example of, of just building tissue tolerance is um, I'm going to butcher the name, but I think it's the, the long distance runner Halle Gabrielisi. Um, yeah. And you look at slow motion footage of, of what his foot and ankle does, and it's it's a hideous amount of pronation. Like if you saw that in the clinic, you you would go like, that's <laughs> this, 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 and this. Yeah, he, like, he's one of the world's fastest men at long distance. You know, so there's a certain amount of tissue adaptation that's that's happened with that. And I think um, I think it's about finding that window or that envelope of function and, and maximising that through range, through loading, through both, mm -hmm. um, and chipping away at that. And if there's any sort of psychological factors impacting on that, addressing them as appropriate. You know, sometimes I think physical conditions cause psychological problems. Um, well, I know it happens. And so trying to address those psychological problems there, uh, I mean, I'm not a psychologist. I'm, I'm not really qualified to do that. I can change the physical aspect and that changes the psychological aspect, great. But sometimes it goes the other way as well, getting help. Mm -hmm. um, a great example of that is um, I had a lady who was a, an over 60s female, obese lady with diabetes, we've been cracking away at foot, doing all this sort of stuff, um, which not running. Um, she wasn't anywhere near that point. Um, but all the other stuff, offloading and training and things like that, about six weeks, not really getting anywhere. And then the next point she came in and she had a big smile on her face and she, she just looked like a different person, right? Like just something had changed. What, what's, and she's like, my pain's great, I've had no pain, it's, it's fantastic. So what's changed? Something's happened between the time I saw you last time and, and now. You're doing great, that's great. What's happened? And she said, I've met someone, I've met, I've met a fella, um, we go for you know, walks on the beach and, and for her that was it. You know, all and the stuff in the world. Didn't make a jot of difference. Finding someone, um, we're in a happy mood. Walking became enjoyable and big stuff. You know? Wow. So sometimes there's little things that you just there's nothing you can do about it. It just stuff happens. So yeah. Um, so that's that's the, that's the psychosocial aspect of it, I suppose. Anything to add there, Connor? Of your like tendinopathy or your fasciopathy overuse injuries, um, the literature just shows us that it needs some sort of load and it needs to adjust some sort of load, which is kind of reassuring for us because what doesn't work for one person, whether it be heavy slow resistance or stretching or finding a partner, may well work <laughs> for someone else. So I think like it's important to to manage the loads. But everyone will have things that they kind of like more than others or will respond to better than others. So I've, I've found like, especially with you guys talk mainly in like a rugby league context or a field sport context, but we'd say like I have a few runners come in with Achilles tendinopathy or like your plantar fasciopathy or heel pain, whatever it may be. But they still get similar responses to heavy, slow resistance training which is obviously loading the tendon a lot and same with stretching. Like, and I find that pretty interesting because the only, a tendon doesn't really know whether you're heavy, slow resisting it or you're stretching it. All it feels is kind of tension and it's just the amount of tension that you give it 
overall. Like, it may work differently for the runner. Like, if the runner doesn't get into the gym, like, yeah, I'll give them a stretching program. But if they, they go to the gym, then, yeah, I'll give them heavy, slow resistance. And I think it's, like, it's good because, obviously, you guys work with rugby league and whatever else. You can get them in the gym and they enjoy it and all that kind of stuff. And it probably helps you auto-regulate as well because you guys have more than one contact point with them. You can teach them early on what to expect with the heavy slow resistance or, like you said, adding in those high demands tasks with like a undulating periodization. Whereas if you only see the runner, like in, in public system, whatever it may be, once or twice a week, and you give them a stretching kind of protocol, it, the literature actually backs up that they'll probably still get a similar result. So I don't know, it's, it's kind of weird. You can do either thing, but as long as you monitor what, how much load they do and give them, again, some sort of load or some sort of tension through either of these injuries, they seem to get better. Have you guys kind of found that or? Um, I haven't done a lot of the stretching, um, to be honest. I've, I've mainly done it through, through loading, um, through, through exercise. But, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, you're right, like the tendon doesn't know if you're stretching or if it's, you know, um, constructing against the muscle. Um, I think eventually you've got to build up to that elastic nature of it, whatever way you go, whether it's with, uh, having a go. After you've done a, a progressively low stretching program, going to a more ballistic type exercises or, or um, you know, even a bit TheraBand work, which, you know, pulls it a little bit more, but you've got that ability to um, contract against it as well. Or just the running volume loads as well. Like, I mean, you're stretching alongside their running and just playing with their running volume loads being there. I think the other lower limb that you were going to talk about was Achilles ruptures. Yeah, look, I find them really hard. Um, and I guess, bear in mind, the sorts of ruptures that I generally see are people over the age of 40. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, they're also really hard because the tendon is, is you know, something's led to them rupturing in the first instance, whether it's, um, you know, playing sport they're not accustomed to, you know, child's athletics day and the and daddy-daughter race come up and, you know, <laughs> Daughters on the shoulders and been for a run and popped it, um, or something else. Uh, I mean, you have to question how good the, the tendon tissues to start with. Um, obviously, there's there's protocols to follow, and, and there's not much wiggle room in those in the first twelve weeks. You kind of got to follow them. You know, no, no wait a couple of weeks and the burps and heel raises um, to progressively reducing those heel raises to eventually taking the boot off and, and starting some really light. Resistance-based exercises. I don't particularly like stretching Achilles ruptures at any point. Um, for me personally, if they've got 10 degrees subacrural dorsiflexion, when I measure it the first time, I'm pretty happy with that. I think the risk of stretching it is is lengthening the tendon tissue and then creating really poor length tendon uh, length relations within the tendon and the muscular tendon unit which, you know, will reduce power later on down the line. So I don't think you'd like to stretch them. 
if I want to get a bit more range, I like some foam roller stuff for the, for the muscle bellies um, and chipping away at that. But then after the 12 week markers, you're starting to ramp things up a little bit more. Still following the same um, process as I, I sort of mentioned earlier, but I just find it's really slow going and it's really hard work to get that power going in us. You know, I, I unfortunately don't have the opportunity to follow people up 12 months, 80 months down the line. They're a long-term increase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it takes probably at least 12 months to recover from yeah. that. And, and, and how far you go, I think there's a, a lot of limitations. So I'm kind of at my limitation when they get to about six months, you know, of what I can, can do and see them in the public system. And, and they're never, never as good as they want to be by that stage. Um, but I think a lot of tendon loading, stretch shortening cycle um, work is important, I think. Um, and starting off with just some, you know, not not challenging it too much, but starting off with just like jumps, trying to build that that power there without without even going to climb and shift work, but chipping away at that um, for a bit, and then more and more and more work on that climb and shift work. But look, it's it's bloody slow going, and it's 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 not satisfying to work with them because they're, I mean. <laughs> You know, the progress isn't satisfying. It's always satisfying to work with someone that's going to put gold and things like that, but the progress is really slow. It's it's slower than anything else. Um, it's a lot of hard work. I don't know what it's like in younger people um, with traumatic injuries or tendon severing and things like that, but it's, yeah, it's hard. I'm dealing with two... Oh, sorry, go on, Connor. Do you see them post-surgical, or do you see conservative management through public system more often? No, I, I always see conservative management. Um, I, I couldn't. I might have seen one in the last ten years, and that was because something fell on his ankle. He was a bit younger. It was a, uh, something fell on it, and that's what caused it to rupture. Fell on it and cut it, or something like that. So I don't tend to see them. Um, it would be interesting to hear from from you guys if you've seen the, the surgical managements and how they go. The conservative ones are slow. Partly because maybe it's conservative, um, but also partly probably because the fact that the tendon's a bit older and not that great to start with. Well, that I guess the we should just quickly briefly mention all of the intrinsic or the intrinsic factors in a person that can I guess go in with that tendon. So I mean, you know, if someone is on medications, especially like your corticosteroid medications, um, if someone has like a really poor diet. Um, if someone is, oh, what are the other ones off the top of the head? Can you think of any, Connor? Fluoroquinolones, those antibiotics, yep. those ones, if you've been yep. um, yeah, diabetics. Yes, do, the health conditions, yes. So there's, there's, diabetic, yeah, any vascular problems, your hormones, all these your menopause. Yeah. And, and especially like I, being an SNC coach, you have a little bit, it's weird, you have a little bit of um, a scope of practice in diet stuff as well. So with at least my athletes, I'll kind of, when they're going through any of these like tendon-related issues, we'll um, do a little bit of counselling on reading the guidelines regarding kind of protein intakes and kind of, vitamin C intakes, those type of things as well, because um, they're things, I guess, help rebuild 
um, kind of collagen and, and protein synthesis and tendon protein synthesis. So um, definitely kind of factors there that are important. Um, and yeah, I was, I was just going to say, I'm dealing with two um, surgical repairs at the moment and it's really interesting. Um, so I treat them a lot like ACLs and they have to go through the similar time of if going to return to run. But it's interesting. I've yep. found that a lot of them can um, do the hot, like going back to your dynamic system theory, the body just yep. figured out a way to uh, work around, like they can't single leg calf raise yet, but you go and test and they're like, they can hop 70 odd percent. They can jog yeah. and it looks almost like normal. And they're just like, it's, it's just really interesting. One of the very last things to come is that is the actual plantar flexion yeah. strength, maximal strength. They actually like can work around it and achieve all of their tasks within that kind of, I don't know, six to nine months, but then they still don't have this like, isolated plantar flexion strength for a while that does take it quite some time. really hard it's really hard and yeah yeah it's really hard and that's um where maybe i wonder if at that point when they're allowed to adding heavy loads whether you're a straight knee or a bent knee um type of uh, a calf raise or both um maybe works and then getting when they're ready when you're happy to run some of those running drills like those dribbles or, or simple hops with a straight leg or, or any other sort of running drills that you can't cheat on. Um, yep. You know what I mean? Where, where those muscles have to have to work in a sort of isometrical, quasi sort of isometric fashion where you load up the tendon and, and, and gain that there. So yeah, just, just hopping, broad hop or vertical, vertical hop. Yeah, like you say, it's easy to cheat. But it's really hard to get that plan of action straight back. Really hard. That's what I found as well. We had, um, like, we actually had this as a case study last week at our in service. I had a Achilles tendon rupture guy who was managed conservatively, going really well. And I was just going through the continuum of loading. So I got him through like isometrics, then isotonics, and then I was really finding that even if I loaded him up bent knee, like this guy is a 90 kilo guy and he could bent knee like raise in the Smith's machine a hundred and something kilos and he could do it like 10 times. And then I could, couldn't get him to do a single leg heel raise though. He could yeah, yeah, yeah. Bent yeah. knee raises, he could do hopping, he could even jog across the street. So I was kind of uncertain as to whether to like, or not that I allow or disallow anyone to do anything, but how safe is it that he can't generate this force, but he can still go out and run? Would you would you allow them to jog and things like that, or? Um, I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look, I think um, if you've done that, you can you can you can see that he can you know for that guy he can tolerate putting load through that that tendon body weight. For starters, plus say 100 kilos as well on a super machine. Yeah. So, you know, there's at least two to three times body weight there, you know, if, if you're moving, they'll add a little bit extra. So, you, you, I probably would, short yeah. distances. Again, starting easy and then building up and seeing how they feel at the time and then how it responds the next day and, and using that as your guide to, to ramp it up. 
Yeah. And that's kind of what we what we came up with as well in the clinic. Because there was a few of us who'd say, no, nah, keep him keep him off it until he can do a few raise and then go from there. And then there was a few of us who were like, oh, but if he can hop and he doesn't get any pain with it, just, just let him do it. So, yeah, yeah, it was a weird one. I've never experienced anything like that with any other joint or any other injury. But, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's let's finish off with talking, say, um, injury kind of prediction, um, prevention, risk minimization, um, late stage rehab stuff. So, with ankles and feet, what are you thinking? Um, kind of injury risk identify like uh, what what puts someone at a higher risk? Do you think? Yeah. Look, for me, it's, it's always. Sorry. Or the evidence kind of shows. Um, I think, from what I'm aware, evidence sort of shows that if they've had a previous ankle injury, that's probably the biggest predictor of whether they have another, have another one. Mm -hmm. um, flexion mobility is probably another one, and strength. But how do you how do you quantify strength? Mm -hmm. what, what's your measuring tool for that? Um, is it single leg calf raises? Is it a hop? Is it absolute strength? You know, is it isokinetic or loaded strength? I don't know enough about that. Uh, yeah. um, I certainly find um, in the clinic with the footy guys, one of the best ways to see whether they've had a previous, probably lowering injury, not just ankle injury, but getting them to do something like that, triple crossover hop. And that, you know, either side and seeing if there's a difference. And, Nine times out of ten, it just seems to expose a previous injury. Um, even if they've said, no, no, I'm fine, yep, no injuries, no previous injuries, do it. There might be 50 centimetres, 70 centimetres difference. So, what have you injured? Oh, yeah, I did my ankle two years ago. Um, so, I find that exposes it a little bit because it's plyometric and there's a bit of change in direction. Um, so, that's, that's probably my best tips mm -hmm. in looking through that plyometric ability. There's probably Heaps of others. I know McHugh's looks like a lateral hop, which is probably a really good um, lateral hops in 30 seconds. I know that's probably a really good predictive factor as well, or gives you a good indication of strength, finish, ability, endurance. Um, yeah, that's what I use. Nice. And I think that um, the clinical practice guidelines also mention like your proprioception again, but as yeah. I think we'll, we'll talk, um, lots of these things. Basically, your primary first-time ankle sprain is very, very, very hard to prevent or kind of predict realistically. Yeah. The chronically, like the secondary onwards, you can have quite good targeted interventions once someone has had an ankle sprain. But I mean, the first one, short of taping everyone's ankles, is hard, and yeah. that's not even going to prevent it. Yeah. It's kind of just trying to apply a really good strength and conditioning program that, that covers hopping, landing, jumping, um, proprioception, strength, change of direction. Well, Scotty, you're yeah. huge on doing, doing like ankle, um, like preparatory work, like things that stress yeah. the lateral ankle ligaments. Well, not, not just, not just that, but I think as a, as a lower limb, Injury kind of prevention. Um, I think that's really good. Those wide arcs, those skipping and hops, um, jumping and landing, 
um, and landing sticking, that sort of stuff. So, so you, you need you need sort of ACL stuff. Um, I think it all works together. And I know last year at Valleys um, we did that, and I think we had over the three or over the people that regularly came to training. I think we had three ankle sprains, and we had about five or six calf strains. I think so. More calf strains than I'm happy with, but not a lot of ankle sprains. And I could have been completely lucky that year. Um, personally, you know, my ego likes to think of some of the stuff that we did in the warm up that made a difference, but, you know, it could well have just been luck. So hard to say. But I think um, in a warm up or injury prevention kind of program, I think that sort of the lateral stuff, the, 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 the curves, the, the change of directions, I think that's that's fantastic, and I think um, any any program that's worth the salt to try and reduce injuries has got to have that in it, whether it's the knee or the ankle. You know, thank you, Buck. I agree with that. It's yeah, it's good. Um, I've kind of got a question. I don't know if you want to talk about it now, but I know you've kind of thought about it previously, Steve, in regards of like kind of preparing the lateral ankle, like that ligamentous complex force strain like actually exposing it to lower amounts of strain, say, for instance, walking on the, the lateral edges of your feet and getting them to do things like that. Is there, do you guys... Reactive, reactive perineal drills, standing on the edge of a step and, and kind of letting it almost roll and bringing it back? Yeah, do, do you guys think there's any value in doing that kind of stuff? Because obviously it it need a fair bit of force to kind of actually make the ligament thicker or tougher, like, do you think it's worth doing? What do you reckon, Steve, you do it? Well, it's where my head was going. Um, so, I don't know, I'm just like, we're trying to think of different ways to prevent something that is showing that it's unpreventable, I guess. <laughs> but um, yeah. So... I, there's no study or research into it, but that's my head goes into thinking, let's try to prepare it for the worst scenario and onwards. So might be something that we, we did in, start doing it this year. So we did lateral um, walking, we did toe walking, we did heel walking, and we were starting to, it was in a periodization, that was a start, and then later was going to be, but then COVID came doing reactive perineal drills standing on the side of a step and basically getting the guys to try to roll their ankle and pull it back. Yeah. So um, we didn't get to run that experiment out, unfortunately, but it's definitely something that I am interested in. I mean, I, I see your reasoning there. Um, and the proof's in the pudding, really. Yeah, unfortunately, you didn't get to carry, you know, follow the whole way through. Um, we'd be really interested to see whether it made a difference or not. Um, from my point of view, personally, I don't like it. Um, and I think from a, like a risk reward basis, you know, what's the risk of these people injuring themselves? Not disagreement, but a good little differing of opinion that we yeah. have about, um, the use of kind of trying to do some first or well, primary ankle prevention strategies. And so like, I'm, I'm more on the side of let's give it a, crack with trying to to work on some oh, trying to increase the strain and maybe hypertrophy of the lateral ankle ligaments etc no idea not evidence-based nothing just me trying something different and you were kind of going on that on the other 
way. So I'll let you finish your point there. Yeah, so um, it's not something I would go for. Um, I think risk reward on that. What's the risk of, of injury in the first instance? Uh, my coach wouldn't be happy if I uh, had someone out because of that. Um, but also that basic fifth um, man is a bit sensitive. And I guess you build tolerance to that, but still um, a bit sensitive. And the other thing that I would um, question um, is that what are you trying to hypertrophy? I mean, if, it depends how you're doing it, right? But if, you're, if your shin, if your tibia is vertical and you're in like a, if your ankle's in a 90 degree um, angle dorsiflexion or mm-hmm. flexion, whatever way you want to put it, what ligament are you stressing going into inversion? Um, and is that doing the same thing? Uh, is that going to help everything around that no. sort of lateral angle complex? That's, or, that's or, not, or is it just going to help one? So yeah, um, in terms of bang for buck, it's not my favourite. Yep. Um, certainly working, doing some, when I started some SSC work, um, it was hard fitting everything in. Like, you know, like, like, as, as much as you think you're going to have so much time to do all this sort of stuff, it's not enough time to do it all. So I really like that, that lateral cutting manoeuvres. I like the, the wide arcs because you can put it into like a field warmer. Um, it does AC, can help with ACL prevention as well. Um, just lateral movement puts the, the ankle joint in different sort of angles as well. So yeah, personally, that's, that's my preference and, um, lack of skill. It worked well for me last year. So that's what I've done again this year. To see what, what happens. I'll, I'll, no. I'll agree with you definitely on that biomechanical point there. Um, yeah, the ATFL won't be, um, which is, I guess, the primary one. Yeah, unless you are kind of plantar flex and inverted. If, if you're kind of missing that, you're kind of almost missing uh, that as well. So, yeah, I mean, if you've got to do something, you know, have a go, see, see what happens. Um, Obviously, COVID throws things in the mix there. I think Connor's got another question. Yeah. This is, yeah, this has been my last kind of curly question, and I thought that you, you might be good for it because you went to that podiatry course. Um, yeah. Just kind of where do you see the role of orthotics, um, and especially kind of long-term? Because a lot of people say, oh, yeah, I've got to wear orthotics for the rest of my life. Personally, I don't know if that's kind of the way to go, but, yeah, kind yeah. of what do they, what do they say? Uh, first, I'm not very prescriptive with my orthotics. I don't um, pretend to know everything about it. Um, I don't pretend to have, you know, any kind of training for, for what is perhaps a deformed foot or a diabetic foot. Um, so I, I'm certainly um, talking out of the scope of what I know, talking about those ones. But um, I tend to use it mainly to offload structure, to give it some breathing space, um, to give it ability to to recover to give it some relative rest and then to begin reloading it. So my opinion from that point of view um, is if you're going to put somebody in orthotics, you've got to have a plan to get them out of it. Um, but that, that's dependent on a couple of things, right? It, it depends how much work the person wants to put into it. You know, if, if, if they're not willing to, to go through these drills, and they're hard drills, you know, I think you've got to try and be at least 25% better than what they need to be. And if they don't want to put in that work, that's okay. And if an orthotic gets them out of trouble, if it gets them out of a jam, 
fine. They've just got to be aware that they need to use a robotic every time they need to do that because they haven't then put their, their tissue structures under that stress to retrain them and, and take that load to, to do it without them. But I think it's like putting a wrist brace on or putting a sling on a shoulder. You know, if you're going to do it, you know, it's hard to do it forever. Yep. So that's, that's, that's how I would approach it. Yep. So that's great. Offload a structure and then train them out of it. Yep. That's how I go, definitely. Yep. Awesome. That all, Connor? Yep, that's everything. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks very much, mate. That's been a huge chat today. Um, sorry we've kept you so long, but it was really interesting. No worries, mate. So, pleasure. Awesome. Um, I'll put up a, do you want us to put up a link for where people can find you if needed? Um, yeah, just, just my email address, which is just uh, cool. scottmcguffin.hotmail.com. Awesome. Um, probably the best one. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Scotty. This has been a big uh, podcast talking all things kind of feet ankles, lower limbs, so uh, we'll catch everyone later. Be on the listen out for Connor's summary. Thanks for tuning in to part two of our chat with Scott McGuffick on the foot and ankle. If you haven't checked out part one on ankle sprains, make sure to go and have a look there. We started part two talking about overuse and overload injuries. Initially, taking a good history of their loading is a good place to start, as it can help you determine why they may have developed their pain or injury. Once you have a good idea of how much load they were placing on their foot and ankle, Relative rest is usually a good way to help it settle. Once pain is settled, Scott likes to use heavy slow resistance training to give the tendon or fascia a big stimulus to help it adapt. This is done alongside their adjusted running and training loads. From there, continuing to work through the continuum from slow isotonic work to more powerful plyometric work. This is where things like tiptoe walking, bounding, hopping and jumping play a role in their rehab as these are the things that help with the elasticity function of the muscles and tendons. Alongside their strengthening work, Scott likes to make sure that their range of motion and proprioception are also progressing, as this can help avoid compensations throughout the rest of the limb. However, the key here is overall managing load. We also touched on here the importance of psychological and personal factors in people's pain, and that different things, including different exercises, will work for different people. From there, we moved on to Achilles ruptures. Most protocols have a strict 12 weeks where we have to follow the protocol, and there isn't a lot of wriggle room. This is just to allow proper healing and reconnection of the tendon. After the person is out of the boot, then working through the continuum of loading from isometrics through to plyometric work once again. Note that with these particular injuries, plantar flexor strength can be very slow to return, and it may be helpful to add in exercises that are further down the continuum, such as hops and jumping. Again, monitor the symptoms and continue to check for pain and swelling. We then moved into risk minimization and prevention. Some of Scott's go-to measures to determine relative risks were presence of previous injuries, dorsiflexion range of motion left versus right, and strength left versus right. It may also be useful to go through the hop tests, like the triple crossover hop or the 30-second lateral hop test. It's very hard to predict first-time ankle sprains, and accidents do happen, but a good strength and conditioning program involving strength, range of motion, hopping, and change of direction can help prepare the foot and ankle for sport. Finishing off, we talked about some ideas surrounding preparing the lateral ankle ligamentous complex for strain and also orthotics. Take home messages for orthotics from Scott was to use them initially to deload the painful movement or position and then have a progressive plan to wean out of them. However, if they don't want to put the work into rehabbing their injury, they may be worth keeping. There may also be a sense of reassurance or confidence while they move. 
Thanks so much to Scott for coming on and talking with us about the foot and ankle. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the RPE podcast. We hope you enjoyed grinding out another RPE 10 show with us. If you like our content, please leave us a like or a rating as it helps drive traffic to our work. We have left links to all of the resources mentioned in the description. If you are watching on YouTube, please leave a comment below, or if you would like to get into contact with us, we will leave our email addresses in the description as well. See you next time on the RPE podcast.